Welcome to Talking Late Night, where we spotlight top comedians and their late night influences. Here's your host, Max Cantor. Hey everybody and welcome to Talking Late Night. I'm your host Max Cantor. Thank you for tuning in today. Now today's guest has been named one of Comedy Central's 2017 Up Next Comics to Watch. He's written for the Onion News Network and ClickHole. He co-created the IFC web series Does Dave Know We're Here? And on top of that he won the Best Comedy Award at the New York Television Festival for his independent pilot Cowards. And finally He has a website that was super convenient talking about his resume, so it was incredibly easy to write this introduction. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Joe Quazala. Welcome to the show, Joe. Hi, Max. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. Um, So to jump jump right into it, so the name of the show is Talking Late Night, so we're going to talk a little bit about your late night influences. So like growing up, uh, when it comes to late night, what were you watching that influenced you and your comedy? So I was I was very into late night, uh, like religiously. So in a way where, uh, literally, I mean, like every so every day, uh, let's say, I want to say two, the year two thousand one. Uh, so that this would have been when I was in just starting high school. I taped uh, the Daily Show with John Stewart, and I taped Late Night with Conan O'Brien, so that I could watch it first thing when I got home from school. Uh, never missed an episode, uh, truly never. I mean, people I feel like sometimes people say that and they're like, Oh no, I re- watched it religiously. I never missed one. And then you ask them about a thing and they haven't seen it. I watched every, it was, uh, truly religion for me. It was, I was obsessive and probably a little annoying about it, but I watched every Conan and every, uh, daily show from like probably 2001 to maybe 2010. Wow! So nine years of episodes every single day. Of uh, yeah, pretty uninterrupted as as far as I know. It's well, it's possible. You know, I, I went. I was in college two thousand five to two thousand nine, maybe somewhere towards the end there. I fell off a little bit, but not that I can recall. Like it was, it was very important to me that I I saw every one of those things because I just thought they were they were so great and they were turning them out every single day. So what did you find great about each show? So, I, I mean, for and this, this is back in the early, you know, early aughts, and uh, it felt like for Conan, and you probably hear this a lot, Conan was very weird and bizarre and writerly. Like, it, it felt like it was for me. It felt like it was alternative. And, you know, when you look at what else was on late night at that time, you compare it to Jay Leno or even Letterman, felt like it had a young sensibility. It felt like it was like silly and it was uh, anarchic. And that for Conan, that's what I really gravitated towards. And then towards, and then John Stewart, it was like, okay, I really liked, I, I think both beyond politically, John is just like, I like his rhythms. I think he's a very uh, talented comedian. And I just kind of like the way, he packaged comedy, but also there was the thing, I think that the whole country was kind of falling in love with the daily show because it was presenting this kind of new thing, this kind of breaking down of bullshit that was in uh, cable news and in the administration. And that was uh, really refreshing and, and so much fun. And also his uh, crew of correspondents at that time were also, you know, they'd come to be the 
biggest comedy stars and it was very obvious at the time they were just so talented so there's just so much talent uh writing and acting on the screen with with the daily show so both those things really just kind of drew me in did so you watch them for their sketches and their bits and their characters uh not so much for the interviews you just watched it for everything oh i mean like the, the interviews what i whatever <laughs> i mean like the uh I always liked John Stewart's interviews because it felt like he didn't he didn't uh, prepare. It didn't seem like there was anything, and then not in a bad way. It felt like he would uh, just kind of have a natural conversation with people, and and uh, he wasn't afraid to just kind of you know look at Jennifer Love Hewitt and be like, "Why are you making a Garfield movie?" <laughs> you know, he was like the only one who was like kind of doing that. And I also thought I think Conan is a very skilled interviewer as well because uh, he's very smart and he has a writer's brain. But I, I wouldn't say I was drawn to them because of the interviews, but I certainly watched all of them because it was part of the show. Mm -hmm. So you talk about, you know, being a very skilled interviewer, or I don't know why I emphasized the last part of the word, in a, <laughs> right. a, very, a very skilled interviewer. Um, so for you, what is the definition of a skilled interviewer? So I think uh, thoughtfulness like and listening. You know, I like to, like right now, I think Seth Meyers is a very good interviewer of the people who are out there right now, because I think he's very thoughtful. I think he's smart. And I feel like he's listening to his uh, guests and he's playing off what they're saying. You know, it doesn't seem sycophantic. I think Conan's an excellent interviewer because, again, he's smart. I think he listens and I, it, it doesn't feel like, I feel like anytime you, it feels like they're reading off a card or you can kind of tell that they don't care uh, about what they're asking. Like it's, there's some, an authenticity issue sometimes. I think those are like kind of the key building blocks. I mean, like obviously if it's entertaining and if, it, if you can roll with things that are unexpected and, and kind of spontaneous, while still uh, kind of keeping it on track. Mm -hmm. Now, did you, it, you take what you learned from Conan and the Daily Show and put it into your very own late-night show, which you had with the late live show? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Uh, so the late live show was, was something that me that I hosted, and I had a very uh, – impressive crew of, of writers and performers in Chicago. This would have been 2010 to about 2013 weekly live late night talk show performed for a theater audience first at second city. And then eventually at the IO theater in Chicago. Uh, and we, I think as a group were most inspired by uh, Conan's sensibilities, but I think as an interviewer for myself, I definitely even with, without even really having to think about it. Because again, I watched those interviews and I watched that show every single day. I think it was absorbed into me. It was kind of, there's some osmosis going on uh, at an early age, but I think no doubt I have that. I have John Stewart and, and Conan in my DNA, both the delivery of monologues and interview style, no doubt. So how many times a week did you guys perform this show? So it would be once a week. We would do it Saturdays, usually at midnight. Uh, and we would do it like in bursts. So we would do it, uh, you know, six, eight weeks in a row and then take a break for a little bit and kind of stockpile material for the next run and then start back up, do eight weeks in a row, do 10 weeks in a row, something like that. 
And then so we would do it like kind of in the seasons a little bit because it's a, it's a difficult thing to keep uh, going, but we also really did like getting into the groove and getting into the grind of like doing it every week. Is it difficult to write new material, like completely new material every single week? Yes, it, it, it is. Uh, and one of the reasons why we would have breaks is so that we could stockpile like evergreen sketches uh, mm. and kind of character pieces so that all we really had to write as the season was progressing, we would just have to write the uh, monologue and the desk piece. So that okay. our, our show was structured as we would have a character come out kind of as like a, a warm-up thing. It would be some kind of, sometimes those were the best, that was the best part of the show. One of the writers would do a character piece uh, at the top, and then I would come out and do a monologue of about six jokes, give or take. Um, maybe, yeah, I, I, it would vary, but it would be maybe eight, you know, no more than 10, but I feel like it was usually around six was our sweet spot. Uh, and then I would do a desk piece and it would be, you know, all original premises. And then we would do, I would do an interview and then we would do a sketch, some sort of evergreen sketch that existed within the world of the show. Usually meaning like someone comes on, interrupts me and a sketch kind of happens around me. And then we would have a musical guest. Oh, so very cool. It was like a typical late night talk show. Yeah, you know, we kept the somewhat of the classic format. Our kind of goal starting out was that we could take a familiar format because everybody knows it and try to cram it with as much subversive uh, kind of weird comedy while still maintaining this. You know, I'm still wearing a suit. That's still like a very professional package, but, you know, we're kind of sneaking in some some weird comedy and some uh, as yeah strange and kind of like I said subversive uh, stuff as we could. Mm-hmm. You wanted to stand out. You wanted to be different. Sure. I mean, and that in, in a way, I really the, the ultimate goal was to make ourselves laugh. You know, and we <laughs> we had a you know we used the room, uh, and by that I mean the writers' room, which was straight up my apartment in Chicago, we would use that uh, as our guiding light. So we would read the sketches out loud, and if they did not get laughs, you know, we wouldn't do it. You know, and we I was very impressed by all the writers' ability to kind of check their ego at the door, because that's, that's kind of a hard thing to do when you're doing collaborative comedy, when you're in a group, is that people want to do things uh, often because they want to showcase themselves, and sometimes you have to give a little bit of leeway because they're pushing it because of their own agenda. But, you know, we, I would read the monologue jokes blind. You know, they would email them to me. I would put them all into a Word doc. I wouldn't know who wrote them. And I would read them out loud for the first time in front of everybody. And based on everybody's laughter on their response, that would be what would get chosen. Oh. Uh, yeah, so it was really what was really cool about it was that we would listen to. So we weren't necessarily like to answer your question, trying to uh, stand out in a way that's like artificial. We were just trying to do something that satisfied ourselves, which I think is a different approach naturally. So that as we were trying to make ourselves laugh, and as we were trying to do comedy that we would want to watch, I think just kind of naturally it had a different feeling to it than a lot of 
shows uh, that you might see in Chicago, let alone the fact that we were the only ones doing a live late night talk show. So even the format alone was novel. But I do think the, the type of comedy we were doing, because we had such a high bar for the quality, it, it turned into uh, a very unique experience. Wow, you guys were the first like live late night talk show at like improv theaters in Chicago. Um, I, I don't. At the time, we were when we started, we were the only ones. Okay. I think there. I mean, I'm for sure. I know Jordan Klepper had a late night talk show at IO at one point years before us, but and this is I think what a lot of improv theaters ended up having is it was like a character and it was like a, a it was like a parody of a talk show mm. uh and Al, alex moffat also had a a talk show at io but it was like a parody and i think we were the first ones to do it kind of earnestly like i came out as myself we weren't making fun of the idea of talk shows we were just straight up doing what we thought would be funny in an actual talk show and then going from there and booking real guests you know i, I really i really tried to make a, a point of it to get interesting guests who weren't just like other comedians who weren't just like improvisers in the building or like local stand-ups or anything. It was very important to me that we got someone kind of outside of the, the sphere uh, and the circles that we ran in. So you said you did the show from 2010 to about 2013? Yeah, that's correct. So I think it ended up being around 50, we probably did 50 episodes uh, total. Okay, so in the in those fifty episodes, uh, what for you was the coolest moment? Uh, well, you know, we we were we started out as such a ragtag thing, uh, and it was hard to book guests because uh, I was doing it. You know, mm-hmm. I was just Jay, trying to present this show in a way that was, you know, not embarrassing, and that made it seem like it would be worth people's time. And you know, we got some really cool guests. Uh, from there's a very well-known chef named Rick Bayless who came on the show and we made guacamole with him and that was really cool and the show was like packed out because especially in Chicago people know who Rick Bayless is Uh, it's an exciting get uh, and you know we're doing the show at at midnight which that alone sometimes is a hard it's a hard sell for people Mm -hmm. we had Danny Pudi who played Abed on Community we had uh, one of the coolest things we had was we had the opportunity to go to Los Angeles uh, for a visit to do the Comedy Central stage to do the show there Whoa. while we were all still living in Chicago. And this was a, less than a year before we ended up moving out there permanently. And uh, we were like, oh, we're going to go out. And we're going to go to L.A. and it's going to be really fun. And we can probably have our pick of the litter for guests because that's where actual celebrities live. One of the major issues with booking guests in Chicago is the, the the talent or maybe not the talent pool, but the famous pool is kind of shallow. Like there's not a lot of people that are big names that live in Chicago. So when we're going to LA, it'll be fun and, and, and we'll be able to get a really exciting guest. And uh, it was really hard because, uh, because uh, famous people, you know, they have better things to do. Yeah. So we found ourselves kind of, I, I mean, when I say ourselves, I was trying to book this guest and I was getting a lot of, uh, non-responses and a lot of, uh, you know, no's, just outright rejections. And then eventually, kind of at the last second, uh, we got Paul Feig, who oh, created wow. Freaks and Geeks and, you know, directed Bridesmaids. And uh, it was, 
he was so nice and he was so great and it felt like such a get for us and the show went over really well. Uh, and so that was like a, a very cool moment of like, okay, we're doing something here. Yeah, that is, that is super cool to be able to get him. That's really, yeah, it, really it, it cool. Was, it was unreal. So while you were doing this show, at the same time, um, I figured, because you said you did it through Second City, you're doing improv. Are you also doing stand-up at this time as well? Well, really, I'm primarily doing stand-up at this, at this uh, juncture. You know, I, I, I kind of knew some people at Second City through a college program that I, I took. Really, my only, my only foray into improv was I, I participated in a thing called Comedy Studies at uh, Second City, which is like a four-college credit uh, every day, basically a study abroad program, but it's at Second City in Chicago. Uh, after that, though, I really didn't pursue improv, but like I had connect, I knew some people at Second City, as did some of the other people working on the show. So that's how kind of we got that theater uh, and how we got to IO. Is it was kind of funny we did our show in improv theaters, but myself and a lot of the other writers were not improv people. Uh, a lot of us were stand-ups, or a lot of us were just kind of like writers who didn't really exist in any other uh, genre, I guess, which was cool. That, like There were some really funny uh, guys and girls who were on the show who the, the show was like the perfect outlet for them, whereas improv or stand-up were not. So I so to answer your question, I was doing stand up. I had before I started this show, I was doing stand up. I continued to do stand up as I was doing it, and uh, to this day, I'm still doing stand up. So it's been like my one constant throughout everything. How old were you when you started stand up? Oh gosh, I started doing stand up when I was in college, uh, and the first time I got on stage to do stand up, I was 18, and the I didn't. But then it was like a it was a college thing, so like. There were not a ton of opportunities to do it, so I think it probably was like five or six months after my first set until I did it again, you know? Mm -hmm. And that first, those first few years, uh, it was kind of like that, where it was like kind of every once in a while I would get to do stand-up. I was very passionate about it, but it was a matter of uh, accessibility to stage time. But by the time I was uh, 20... I was started because that's when I moved to Chicago when I was 20. So then I really started doing it much more often. So I kind of think of it as I kind of started my stand-up career when I was about 20 years old. Do you remember the first joke that you ever wrote? Well, I used to write stand-up jokes when I was in high school, just on a sheet of paper. And then I used to just hide them under my mattress. Hmm. Uh, Cause they didn't, you know, it was like almost almost the thing of like, do, can I do this? Well, I know how to, I mean, like, I, don't, I have no place to say these jokes, but I want to write jokes. I want to be a stand-up. So I would just kind of, it was almost like a fantasy. I, was, I mean, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in a non-entertainment uh, family. Uh, so it was the idea of doing stand-up just seemed like magic to me. I didn't understand how people were able to do it. And uh, I didn't, it seemed so far away as a possibility. Uh, so I got, I remember I, some of the first jokes I wrote were about like smiley face, uh, emojis. <laughs> like when those were like new. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, cause there was I, an early, early joke had something to do with like the, uh, just adding a, a smiley face emoji to the end of a sentence makes it like creepy or something. It was like <laughs> some real basic 
premise like that, you know, that like is meaningful to an 18 year old. Or it was something like, and this is kind of funny. The there, I remember seeing a banner ad at the time. This would have been like I don't know, 2004 or something. That said, like get uh, buy this package and get over a hundred emojis. And I think my premise at the time, which was so on the wrong side of history, was like, hey, who needs a hundred emojis? And now it's like, well, we have like probably a thousand emojis, and it's clearly not enough. Emojis <laughs> are great, and <laughs> we love using them. But at the time, I, I think my premise was like, who, hey, who needs these emojis or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, so those those are some early ones I can remember. Yeah, like the winky face emoji being creepy, something like that. Now you said you came from a family that wasn't very, you know, wasn't very involved with entertainment. Were they supportive of you when you decided that you were going to be a stand-up? Yeah, you know, luckily when I guess my my uh, I kind of eased into being a stand-up. So, you know, it's not a thing of like you, you come home and you, and you drop your bags in front of your parents and say, I'm a stand up now. I'm leaving. <laughs> you know, so it's like I was I was trying it, you know, and I, I knew that I wanted to be it. Uh, but like it didn't really affect anything those first few years when I was just kind of doing it sporadically. Mm-hmm. And I remember my I kind of remember my mom saying something to me where it was like, please don't let this become your thing or something. I think she was afraid <laughs> that I was going to drop out of school or something. Mm hmm. Uh, but I think by the time they got to see me do stand up, I was competent enough where it didn't really worry them. Mm. So, and since then, they've been very, very supportive. I mean, they've always been very supportive of, of kind of everything. But, you know, especially over the years, they've gotten to see me uh, be good at stand up mm. and do well and achieve a few things that I, at this point they you know they love it they'll come they'll drive i did a gig in grand rapids michigan a few months ago and they drove up to see me because wow. they were thrilled that's so, awesome yeah they're yeah it, it's I, I know i'm very lucky because that's not the case with everybody mm-hmm. it's very true um now you mentioned that you moved to chicago when you were 20 why did you pick chicago over places like new york or la well, it was the uh, it was that uh, comedy studies program that I mentioned before. Oh, so, so I had okay. yeah. So I had found out about. Um, so I was in school at Notre Dame, which is in Indiana, and I had come across a pamphlet that was advertising this comedy studies program. You know, go to go to school at Second City every day, all day, like it's uh, college, and it's for college credit. And I was like, oh, this is pretty much exactly what I'm looking for. I knew I had figured out halfway through school because I had gone as a kind of studio art uh, major, like a painting and drawing. And at, at a certain point, I realized I didn't want to do that as I was getting more into stand up. I was like, I think I want to be a comedian. Mm-hmm. But you, you can't that's you can't major in comedy. In, right the majority of colleges. <laughs> but then I found this pamphlet and it was kind of uh exactly what I was looking for. It, 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 you could major in comedy, at least first semester in Chicago. So that's when I, yeah, I, I took a, I had to take a leave of absence from college and then go to, because my college would not accept the credit. Uh, <laughs> so I had to then just take a semester off and go to Chicago and do this thing. It was really, really great. So at this second city, uh, tell me the name of it again. It was second city, yeah, so the program is called Comedy Studies. Comedy Studies. So with the Comedy Studies program, um, 
were you learning like improv, sketch, stand up in like the kind of whole all of comedy put into this one semester, or did you specify what you learned? No, it, well, it, it, in a way, it was the, the first thing you said. Uh, it was a kind of comprehensive comedy thing. I mean, I was coming from Second City, so there's an there's an emphasis on improv and sketch. Uh, but you know, there were maybe 20 kids in the program. You know, we split up into two groups. Uh, everybody's a college-aged uh, person. And, you know, the, some of the classes we took were like writing, like comedy writing. So, you know, it was it would be us learning about sketch structure and stuff and then coming in with our sketches. Kind of uh, a, a version of the program at Second City, their sketch writing program. Uh, and then there was improv, which, again, that was, I'm sure, very similar to the conservatory program that they have at Second City. And then there was acting and there was history of comedy and then there was another thing called concept. Uh, there was voice and movement, and then there was a thing called context for comedy. Uh, so it was all, yeah. So it was kind of an all-encompassing comedy education. Wow. And so was this the moment where you were like, okay, I'm going to be a comedian the rest of my life? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I maybe decided that a little bit more, uh, a little bit earlier than that. But uh, certainly while I was in it, I was like, oh yeah, this is this is what I want to do. I mean, to sign up for the program and do it, I, I think for me, it was like, I was already like committing to like, this is what I'm doing. Of course, I'm going to, I want to be a comedian. So of course I'm going to go to this, this uh, program and do this. Mm -hmm. And I was in heaven and it was, yeah, it was uh, affirming and, and great. So to talk a little bit more about stand up, uh, for your personal style of stand up, are you more of a storyteller or do you like to tell like quick jokes? Um, it's, it's really, I, somewhere in the middle, um, I'm not, uh, it's kind of like observational style, I would say, uh, maybe occasionally self-deprecating, uh, but I don't quite, I don't really tell stories, um, but I will kind of like talk about myself and my experiences and then, you know, the kind of classic observational, so like every joke, I don't know, is maybe like two minutes, so it's not one-liners, but it's also not stories mm -hmm. and what's your writing process for that um it, it, it changes uh and i wish i had a better grasp on it because i don't quite exactly sit down to write my jokes mm -hmm. usually it's if a thought occurs to me just kind of in life or like something happens to me something has to kind of like strike me and then usually I will maybe jot some things down in my phone, you know, try to maybe write it out a little bit on my phone and then, you know, test it out at an open mic. Mm -hmm. And usually sometimes going to an open mic, I'll go to an open mic without any uh, firm idea of what I want to say. And then kind of the pressure of like, you're up in three people will kind of force me to like kind of sort it out and write it out and, and figure it out. Mm -hmm. So do you like showing up at, open mics where nobody knows you so that way it's like completely the people you're testing it on are completely random or do you go to open mics where you frequent a lot um you know it's it's, it's different in different cities because uh, it's the open mic scene in los angeles where i live now is very difficult and you know they're uh, kind of notoriously bad the responses are pretty bad I have, you know, at least one open mic in L.A. that I like, 
because the audience is consistently attentive. Mm. They're listening. Uh, they're responsive. I feel I can get a good gauge on my material there. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it's good when people, when like maybe a few people know you because then they'll listen. Like if they know that like, oh, this is, I know this is Joe. He's not, you know, a maniac off of the street, you know, because that's kind of the bar for, I think, listening to people at open mics. It's like, okay, he's not like a true maniac or like a known uh, abuser or, or like sexist or like, cause, you know, all sorts of truly vile people show up to open mics. I get a little bit of their attention and that can kind of help to focus the room. So then you can get a, an honest response. Mm-hmm. At these open mics, do you encounter a lot of hecklers? And if so, like, how do you deal with a heckler? No, I mean, almost almost never at open mics because uh, most of the people are uh, comedians. So, like, they know not to do that. Mm-hmm. It'd be weird if, if at an open mic there would be a heckler. The mo- the, honestly, the most I ever have to deal with a heckler tends to be at like a comedy club or something, but you know, it's, it's never, uh, as aggressive as I think kind of the stereotypical, uh, heckler is imagined to be like, it's mm-hmm. almost rarely like screaming, you suck. It's usually someone who's very drunk who kind of is out of it and thinks maybe they're helping or they're just kind of vocalizing their responses to what you're saying. Uh, a little too you know, loud. I mean, you shouldn't be vocalizing any responses at a stand-up show. Uh, <laughs> or it's just someone who's just kind of like talking because they're drunk. They don't really understand where they are and, and what the rules are at mm-hmm. a comedy show. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you kind of just, because the audience is always on your side when someone is being annoying. Mm-hmm. And also you have a microphone and they don't. It's very easy to shut them down, sometimes by just like letting them talk because they'll embarrass themselves, and you barely have to have a reaction because they're just, they're ridiculous. Yeah, uh, right. So, yeah, it, it's, and it, it, again, I mean, heckling and interruptions are, are luckily not uh, a huge part of what I feel like I have to deal with. So that's a, that's a good thing. So tell me a little bit about your pilot for Cowards and how it won mm-hmm. the Best Comedy Award. Because I was very impressed sure. reading that. I was like, oh, that is for real. So tell me oh, about you. <laughs> uh, how you came yeah, up with the all idea. Yeah, my credits are real. <laughs> you, didn't fake it. you didn't fake any of them. Uh, I assure you. So tell me yeah. how you came up with the idea and then kind of like mm-hmm. the process of what it's like to submit a show uh, to the New York Television Festival. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. So uh, the late live show, some of the late live show writers and performers moved from Chicago to Los Angeles uh, in 2013, myself included, and uh, three of the other of the other folks involved. Uh, and when we moved out to LA, we were like, uh, okay, well, we need to, we all maybe need to figure out what we want to do in addition to doing. These, this late night show. We tried to launch the late night show again in uh, LA and it didn't quite work. So we were kind of figuring out what we wanted to do. And we were familiar with the New York TV festival. And because we would always watch the trailers of the shows that got submitted, that got accepted every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we would watch them and we would usually go, these seem like they suck. <laughs> uh, we were always really not impressed with what they were accepting. 
And, you know, like I said, we had a, a writing process that we were very proud of that we thought uh, was of a pretty high quality and that we didn't, uh, we didn't suffer bad ideas. And I, I mean, not, not to like uh, really self-aggrandize too much, but like, we were confident in our abilities to write stuff that was funny. And, you know, I'll, I'll just say like the three other people, it was, it was, uh, it was me, but it was Joe McAdam and Chris Stevens and Megan Green. I am just like a very, very big fan of the three of their, uh, skills as writers. Their writing is really, really great. And they're very, very funny, both on their own and both when they collaborate with each other. And I know when I, when I write with them, my writing gets better. So we were trying to think of uh, stuff to do, and we were. So we started. So we just started to do what we always do, which is just start to write stuff. So we started to write uh, an idea for a web series, which at the time was going to be called Social Anxiety, and it was it just kind of a representation of how we feel uncomfortable uh, in social situations. So we were just kind of writing these scripts, and we were really enjoying them, uh, writing them, and we were writing a bunch of them. And the idea would be to shoot them with uh, this guy who I knew from college who I who used to work, uh, we used to collaborate together in college. He was a director and I was a writer-actor. And he lived in L.A. and I was really excited to get to work with him again. So I was able to kind of bring these two worlds together. And uh, we had found that a lot of these uh, scripts that we were writing for this web series took place at a party. Mm-hmm. you know. And we didn't envision it originally as the same party, but we thought, oh, we can take these four ideas and we can put them together uh, and they can all exist in the same party. And then this can be one full pilot because we can kind of interwork these stories together. We can write a beginning and write an end. And then we can make this kind of uh, vignette style pilot that we think could be really funny and really interesting. We already have the bulk of it because these scripts are written and it's all at one location you know, it's all the same party, so that's also easy to shoot. And that was a concern uh, of our right of our director Daniel Clark, who was like, you know, we can do this ultra low budget, but if we can do it in one location, uh, that is the best way to do it because we don't have to move. We can try to shoot it all in like two or three days, uh, and that's what we did. We were like, all right, let's make this happen. And the five of us pooled our money. It ended up not costing more than two thousand dollars. And we called in some favors. Daniel knew all these really uh, excellent crew members. And then, you know, we acted in it. We wrote it. We, you know, were really diligent about rewriting it and trying to make it as as funny and as good as we could. And uh, it all came together somehow. It was difficult, but we were able to do it. Mm -hmm. And when we submitted it and it got accepted, we were really excited and then we had a great time at the festival and we got a lot of great responses and people really loved it. And then, you know, we won best uh, comedy pilot of that year. That was uh, 2014. That is a super cool story. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, it, we were, we were, uh, it was very exciting, especially given that like there had been a moment almost like a year before we won where we did have that conversation of like, we can, we can do this. We're, we can what we're seeing we can be funnier than this and then we uh did it (laughs) it felt very active very actualized right you guys totally conjured it (laughs) you made it appear (laughs) yeah and it was and it was validating too you know because like i said we were we were very proud of our work 
but you know, when sometimes you, you feel like, oh, am I in a bubble or like, am I really getting, you know, I think I'm, I, I'm very impressed by, by co-writers skills and, you know, we think we make good work and then to go to a different city and to kind of get that validation was uh, really nice. Mm-hmm. So as my final question for the show, I ask this of all my guests. Um, mm-hmm. So you're in good company with this question. Uh, but the question is, if you were to give one piece of advice to somebody who eventually wants to be in your shoes, what piece of advice would you give? Okay. Um, I would uh, uh, I would say um, – I'm going to give a few things. Okay. Okay. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to say one is like find people who are funnier than you and work with them, uh, kind of in, in a way of like finding out why they're funny and help in, in using that to help your own process so that, you know, have they, maybe it'll rub off on you a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, cause I think seeking out those people who are truly funny and that you think are funny is very important, especially versus like, you know, sometimes in these scenes, whether it's stand-up or improv, there are people who are kind of anointed as, you know, the kings and queens and, like, the people that are the darlings of the scene. And sometimes that's bullshit, and sometimes that is meaningless, too. Uh, and you've got to really follow your own instincts. Because if you are trying to work with somebody or be somebody who, in your heart, you don't really want to be or you don't want to emulate them then things are not going to work out the way you want it to. And like, the other thing is like the thing about advice with comedy is like, don't take advice from anybody who you don't respect. You don't think it's funny. Like if anybody's listening and they have sought out stuff that I did and they're like, this guy sucks. You gotta don't (laughs) listen to me. Then you gotta do your own thing and you gotta, you gotta figure it out for yourself, you know? And like there's at, at second city, their thing is that they do, uh, political satire. That's like one of the, the major tenets of that building. And there's a lot, there's thousands of people who go through that training center and there's no way every single one of them wants to do political satire or is even good at it or even wants to do it the way that Second City does it. Uh, yet that is like what the whole building is about. So you, when you when you take instruction, when you take uh, classes or advice, it, I just think it's so important that you're taking into account where it's coming from and you're thinking about what it is that you want to do. Yeah. Well, you know what? I agreed with every single point that you made. <laughs> every single one. Well, <laughs> I'm so glad, Max. Because of your response, I'm now going to rephrase the question. Um, piece of advices, plural now, so that way it can <laughs> right. open it up. for So people can can uh, have more more than one thing. But that, I agreed with all of it. That was absolutely for awesome. Sure. And if if for anyone listening, um, do you uh-huh. have like a website where people can find you or a Twitter? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, yeah, they can follow me on Twitter, which is at Joe K, Joe K. And then my Instagram is at Joe Kwa, which is J-O-E-K-W-A. And then, you know, if you Google Joe Quazala, even if you don't know how to spell it, I'm assuming if you read this podcast, it's spelled correctly. <laughs> Go to JoeQuazala.com, has my dates and stuff on it. And, uh, you know, a, a link to nearly all the, the videos that I've done that I like. All right, perfect. Well, Joe, thanks again for being on the show. I'm glad we got to talk. 
Yes, thank you for having me, Max. This was really nice. And to anybody listening, remember, you can like us on our Facebook page at Talking Late Night. Find us on our website at www.talkinglatenight.com. And you can also find us on iTunes, where you can rate and leave us a review. So thanks again for Joe for being on the show. Thanks to you for listening, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 